Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 15. I think you're going to like it. Here we're pivoting into the shots and all the complications associated with that, including things like the single bullet theory and other interesting aspects of it all as well. I know all of you are suffering from Zapruder on the brain, so hopefully this won't be a six-part series, but it will be more than one. And I think you'll like this one too. It's very interesting, and it sets us up for a whole bunch of whodunit stuff later on in the series. All right, without further ado, let's listen to episode 15. Don't turn a pencil into a rocket ship. This is an old saying that I used to use with my colleagues in business. I would say it often over the years to all the folks that worked with me. It was my personal euphemism and request to keep things simple where there was no need for complication. But in the case of the JFK assassination, we must, unfortunately, wade into the complexity of things. But wait, right now, flash back to episode seven with me, you yourself the jury, and how we got from sort of easy peasy that is, five witnesses who stood there and stared at the shooter and saw the whole thing, where in that scenario, forensics and circumstantial evidence just were not that important. And then we switched back to a scenario where everybody was at the valet getting their ticket validated, and frankly, they didn't see anyone do it. And then the forensics and the circumstantial evidence became very important. One more thing to keep in mind. Remember how you learned as a young child about the consequences of lying? You can never tell just one. The moment you tell one, you are then forced to tell many more to cover up the original lie, one after another, whether you like it or not. Now, I'm not going to call what the Warren Commission did here a lie. I don't think it was. But when you ignore the right answer on something or some of the real evidence and state a different conclusion as a result, it just doesn't feel right. They crossed their own Rubicon, and I think they thought it was for the greater good. Without getting into the why of it, how did this whole investigation tumble into the abyss? Become so complicated, I mean. Uh, By the way, the how is different from the why in the answer to this question. We get to the why a little later. Right now, we are on the procedural how. Why has its own fascinating story tell, and I can't wait to get to that. But we got to do Chem 1 before we do Chem 2. Back to the how. So here is the answer to the question. At first, it was the lone gunman theory, the basic narrative that the government embraced all the way back to the Katzenbach memo, which was drafted at the Justice Department in the immediate aftermath of the assassination, and certainly welcomed by the FBI and others in high places, all for their various and rather separate parochial reasons. Which then led to the required conclusion that it had to be one gun, right? One gunman? One gun. Well, which gun? Well, it had to be the one he owned, whoever he was, and it had to be one the government can prove that he owned. 
Well, the Mannlicher Carcano rifle fit that bill. If it was then, the Italian carbine Mannlicher Carcano rifle, a bolt-action rifle that can only fire so fast, 2.8 seconds in between rounds, by the way, remember that from our earlier episodes, then along comes the Zapruder film. Can you imagine all those Warren Commission attorneys when this film got thrown into the mix? The Zapruder film put a timestamp on everything, and now we begin to exist in this ever-growing world of multifactorial problem-solving. Jeez. Oh, and there's more. There is only three bullets. We didn't find any evidence of any more than three. Did we? Nope. Well, that's their story, and they are sticking to it. Oh my God, it's getting complicated. This is some sort of simultaneous equation of epic proportions. There's only one answer that fits all these variables. Aha, the single bullet theory. The single bullet theory tried to solve for all these variables at once because solving for all of them at once was the only way to support the government's narrative. They may have been right, by the way. That is still quite possible. But it was clear that these elements all contributed to the birth of the single bullet theory. Also, James Tagg was no help either. The Warren Commission wished he'd never got caught in the traffic jam and stopped to watch the motorcade. More on that to come. You know, it's like so many things in this case. You start saying that this thing happened, it's maybe a 20% probability, and then that leads to the chance that the next thing could happen, and that particular thing had a 20% probability, and so on and so on, till the multiplicative sum of all those probabilities is pretty small. And yet it happened. Or so the Warren Commission says. It's really all part of our narrative in the storytell here about the assassination. That fact here sometimes is stranger than fiction. So you yourself will be the judge before we finish on whether and what you think is true. And remember, I'm going to give you my thoughts on it at the very, very end. All right, back to our original example in You, Yourself, The Jury. The moment that nobody saw someone actually make the shot, forensics then become ultra important. Forensics and circumstantial evidence, which is the massive evidence that we are about to study and that we are about to jump into. Don't worry, it's not going to be court TV. I am going to keep it moving along, promise. You know, as I said at the outset of this series, the Warren Commission covered some things pretty well. Some things in this area of study of the Assassination Review were actually done quite well. Now, here is where the conspiracy theorists have a tendency to invoke a sort of scorched earth policy on a wide swath around any narrow topic of dubious conclusion by the commission. It's really sort of malfeasance by association. Certainly, the single bullet theory itself is the most controversial, and because of that, As I just said, conspiracy theorists have torn a wide path around this. And that's a shame because, as I said, much of the forensics around the shots were full of painstaking work associated with pretty good forensics. I really have to paraphrase a comment here by Robert Blakey after he finished the work by the House Select Committee on Assassinations. He said, this whole thing is really about the death of the president and finding the truth. 
And he said something really profound. He said it would be better to stumble upon the truth without much effort than it would be to study it copiously and get to the wrong answer. All we are looking for here is the truth. The autopsy was generally considered to be tainted at best and botched at worst, and that is another part of the forensic analysis that would shed light on things. But let's set that aside for a minute. Even though it's another example of where some conspiracy theorists broadly attack the credibility of the report, and this too tends to be extended to other parts of the forensic evidence around the shots somewhat inappropriately. There are other examples as well in this mess of evidence where the Warren Commission did appear to simply bend things in to match the narrative. One example is the evidence around the shooting related to General Walker and the one bullet that they found on the scene. Uh, That's a tease from me, and I will tell the rest of that story later. But in general, there are a handful of examples where the commission is seeding that the facts don't match, but the language used in the report softens the contrary conclusion. The apparent and well-documented contradiction that remains in clear sight right in the middle of the Warren Commission report. For that, you really do have to thank the commission itself. Unlike the error of omission, sometimes they just decided to publish what you needed in order to contradict them. Right there in plain sight. But one thing they did was make you read a little bit of the report and go find it. To be fair to the Warren Commission, they were not the primary investigative agencies. Clearly, the Dallas Police Department and then the FBI were the primary investigating agencies to begin with. So here is another example that sometimes is heaped upon the Warren Commission, but really needs to be owned by the Dallas Police. The issues abound with the only eyewitness lineups to identify Oswald after the shooting. That is, the two police lineups that occurred and were conducted by the Dallas Police Department. They were almost assuredly considered a complete botch. Maybe that's how they did it in those days for a typical street criminal with not too many people paying attention. But geez, for the president of the United States? Well, as we get to that topic, I'll share some of the rant and the rave about the lineups that original critics such as Harold Weisberg pointed out. Harold Weisberg is a name that you've heard me say earlier, and he is a well-respected and early critic of the Warren Commission. To be fair, you have to point out some of the things that the Warren Commission did right as well. One place the Warren Commission got it right was the paraffin test. The conspiracy theorists really took editorial right here. I guess they used a simple fact to their advantage, that most people don't read the Warren report itself. You see, The Dallas Police Department took a paraffin test, and it was negative for residue on the face. However, the test did indicate that Oswald was, in fact, positive for paraffin on his hands, and that's often present when firing a pistol. But it's not unusual when shooting a rifle to have an absence of paraffin on the face. The conspiracy theorists made this into a big deal and tried to point to the idea that the Warren Commission and the FBI were ignoring evidence, when the truth is that the science of paraffin tests had already in 1963 been abandoned and were generally considered to be unreliable evidence in a court of law. The Warren Commission report said that, and said it even though Oswald tested positive on his hands. Now, certainly, they had to protect the idea that he was the lone gunman for the president. That was paramount. And there certainly was other corroborations under the Tippett murder. So, 
One could see the point of the conspiracy theorists saying the whole test was not admissible was the only way that the commission could discredit the idea that the paraffin test cleared Oswald in the president's case and then was not that important in proving he murdered Tippett. I think the real answer here, though, is that the Warren Commission simply came to the right conclusion and discounted in totality the paraffin test. And they said so. It was truthful and it was right. And they have to be commended for that. The area around the shots really garnered so much attention over the years. And for those of you in the listening audience from Pittsburgh, one of the hometown folks there is most famous for attempting to dispel the single bullet theory. Cyril Wecht. Cyril is a doctor. He spent a good part of his life living in Pittsburgh, and for a good period of time, he was the county coroner there in Allegheny County. In fact, he has his own fascinating history as a post-facto expert participant in the assassination review. One of the most famous forensic pathologists in America, having consulted on some of the most famous murder cases in the country. He was, as I understand, and Cyril tells it, the first private American citizen to ever see any of the JFK evidence that was in custody at the National Archives. Initially, he was approached by Jim Garrison to testify at the Clay Shaw trial in New Orleans. He never testified. Before he could examine all the evidence, a federal judge got in the way. Having nothing to review, he decided that it would be impossible to testify at the trial. He is a fierce critic of the single bullet theory. Like most notable individuals, he wrote a book that covered certain aspects of the Kennedy case, and he has been active in the conspiracy study since his initial involvement in the 60s. He was on the panel that reviewed the forensic pathology work for the House Select Committee in the 1970s. I actually had the pleasure to sit down with Cyril and have lunch with him about five or six years ago. It was a delightful experience and a real honor for me but it was too short of an encounter to solve the case. Cyril wasn't talking a lot about the specifics of the forensics that day, but we had a nice relaxing lunch at a restaurant named Eleven, just a few blocks from downtown Pittsburgh where I was living at the time. At this stage of life, he was more focused on the why, the bigger picture of what was really happening underneath the events themselves. Ultimately, it's what we all want to know, but unfortunately, we all have to take Chem 1 before we can take Chem 2. Cyril, by any measurement, is an absolutely entertaining man and certainly was courageous at that time in America to be a member of the establishment, so to speak, and still speak out. And like so many at the time, I'm sure he wondered at times if he should be looking over his shoulder as a result of doing it. Well, that was a side note about Cyril Wecht, but it was worth making. Okay, where do we go from here? Let's go think back to our original premise of at least trying to not make a pencil out of a rocket ship. How do we look at the whole topic of the shots and the evidence around it and just try to simplify it a bit? And also just basically apply some common sense. Let me walk through a listing of things that I think are important to try to keep top of mind as we wade into all these details. Sort of the KISS method. What really has to add up and stick together to allow us to conclude one way or the other on what the truth is about whether Lee Harvey Oswald was the sole assassin, or for that matter, was even involved at all. I had a good friend in business, a mentor actually, and one of the finest men I know. He taught me so much. Tony Crayer is his name. He is perhaps the most courageous business person I ever met. 
He's retired now. I owe a lot to Tony. This little piece of it is for him. Often in the middle of business conversations, Tony would ask a laser-like question, and then the person on the other end would speak. Most of the time, in response to Tony's laser-like question, out would come a mountain of superfluous facts that were just mind-numbing. And then Tony, meaning no disrespect to the purveyor of those facts, well, he would then say, with a certain sarcastically incredulous look, I'm just a simple guy, a putz accountant. It was his version of not turning a pencil into a rocket ship. Tony, in reality, has one of the most analytical minds I ever encountered in business. He was already asking and answering so many questions quietly to himself, but the ones that made their way out loud were usually doozies. Folks couldn't always answer them, but he knew they should be able to. He made everyone on the whole team sharper for it, and he helped me to understand that you have to understand and know your facts and get them right. He was a Marine, by the way, in his younger years. And Tony, if you're listening, well, this one really is for you. And I'm going to try and keep it simple. First, we know that Kennedy was hit and killed by shots, so that's not disputed. So where did they come from? That's the first question. Several hundred people were in Dealey Plaza that day. Shouldn't we understand what they saw and what they said about it afterward? Maybe know how many of them are on record and how many of them are not on record as having testified or provided a deposition and what they thought in terms of where the shots came from. That's a lot of witnesses. We should know what all of them think. For God's sake, this is the death of the president. No one knows whether the last witness deposed would have an important piece of information. At least a handful of those witnesses saw a rifle barrel sticking out of the sixth floor of the depository. Aren't we going to want to understand who those folks are and then listen to them? They all witnessed a critical element of the assassination. One eyewitness that falls into this category is Edward Brennan. We mentioned him earlier in the early Warren Commission episodes. Now, he turned out to be not such a good eyewitness after all. You'll hear that during the discussion about the lineups, but nevertheless. Next, obviously, there was a gun involved. And so can we tie this gun to the shooter in some way since no one actually saw him take the shots? What circumstantial evidence is there that ties him to the gun and how strong is it? If Oswald owned the gun and his wife Marina saw the gun at the house, would she know enough about guns to positively ID it? Did they ask her? Perhaps the same question could have been asked of Mrs. Payne. My understanding is that Ruth Payne, while she was not asked about this, actually did not know that there was a gun being retained at her house until after the assassination. At least I think that's the story and she's sticking to it. If Oswald fired the gun, maybe there are fingerprints on it. What did they find? Was there a match? Who took them? And was the process credible? How did the gun really get into the school book depository in the first place? Didn't I hear Buell Wesley Frazier say that the package Lee had that day was just too small to be the Manlicker Carcano broken down? All right, so if the gun was Oswald's and the government can prove it, 
then is there forensic evidence deposited by the shots themselves that were gathered at the scene of the crime? And that ties back to the gun. You know, bullet fragments that would be perhaps in the bodies of the victims or in the car somewhere or outside of the car if perhaps a shot missed. Obviously, we want to know a little bit, too, about the type of ammunition that was used, because that clearly has bearing on many of the aspects of how those bullets behaved. Next, it was a long ways away, wasn't it, from the window? Was the gun that was used, supposedly the Manlicker Carcano, even capable enough to make a shot from 265 feet away? That was the distance the bullet traveled for the final headshot. By the way, that's practically the length of a football field. Did it have a scope on it? And was the scope a good one and well positioned? And was there any evidence that it was adjusted so as to maximize the shooter's chances of making the shot? I I hope there's a hunter or two on the jury with me. I want to hear their thoughts on the equipment side. I just heard about the distance, but weren't there other factors that may have added to the difficulty of making this shot? For instance, wasn't the limousine moving? Therefore, it was a moving target? How much harder does that make it in order to hit the target? Oh, and let's not forget maybe one of the most important things. This was a shot taken by a human being that was just getting ready to shoot at the president. For God's sakes, how good of a shot was he? Shouldn't I know about his capacity in that regard? You know, facts, not conjecture. Oh, and don't you think he probably was nervous as hell? And that he probably had an elevated heart rate? Possibly these and other factors affecting his mental capacity to concentrate, at least right at that moment? Maybe that was a factor or maybe not. I I guess someone that is crazy enough to shoot the president may not have an elevated heartbeat. But again, I'm just saying it could be a factor. Does all this have to add up to three shots? Is that what you said? There's only three shots? They did all this with three shots? Oh, and two of the three shots have to be accurate enough with all of this going on to hit the president in just exactly the right place. Oh, and it all has to kind of perfectly align with the Zapruder timeline. Jeez, this is getting really complicated. Oh, and that damn tree, that live oak tree, was in the way for a good part of that first little section of Elm Street, the street that the limo was on. I know the shooter wouldn't have taken a shot while it was in the way. Definitely, I have to factor that in when I'm listening to what the prosecutors have to say about the timing of the shots. Remember, I heard a bunch of people talk at the beginning that there was one shot, then a pause, and then two rapid shots thereafter. A pow! Pow, pow. And yet, does any of this comport to that? I don't know. I'm going to keep that in the back of my mind, too. Shouldn't I also know something about the number of wounds that the president and Governor Conley sustained? I mean, I I wouldn't look too smart if there were a lot of wounds and the number of wounds ended up being more than the number of bullets that were accounted for. What if there were five penetrating wounds, uh, maybe even seven in total when you count entry and exit, and only two bullets that found their way into the cabin of the limousine and struck someone. Uh, Okay, well, I guess they could have traveled through one part of the body and into another and even through two people, but only if the shots were from a very particular angle and trajectory, a very specific trajectory. 
Oh, geez. If that is the case, then now I have to understand the downward angle of the shot with the shooter being up on the sixth floor and the limo being 265 feet away on the ground. The shot had to be pointed downward, and that would define the trajectory of the shot by definition. Oh, and I can't ignore what damage happened to the car that was clearly attributed to the shots that rang out. What happens if there was a bullet hole that clearly doesn't comport with the idea that it came from the angle of descent, the angle I just talked about, the angle of the shot if it was to be taken from the sixth floor of the depository? What happens if I start looking at the car and there is a bullet hole clear through the windshield, but there is no bullet lodged or penetrated in the hood of the car? Wouldn't that mean that a shot came from more closer to ground level and was not from high above? That is the only angle of approach that could achieve something like that and not result in more damage to the car. Oh, and there's that little thing about Marion Baker. Wasn't he the motorcycle cop that was in the motorcade and upon the first shot quickly made his way over to the Texas School Book Depository, got himself inside and began heading upstairs with the manager of the depository, Roy Truly, and fortuitously ran in to Lee Harvey Oswald, who was on the second floor in the lunchroom at the time. Seems to me if Oswald was on the second floor and not on the sixth floor, we should figure out, hypothetically, how much time it would take if Oswald had been on the sixth floor to ditch that rifle, get himself down onto the second floor, and be there before Marion Baker made his dash into the building. We're talking seconds, not minutes. So we should have some idea if all of that is possible. I need to know these things. Oh my God. This whole thing is getting to be a dizzy, abysmal mess. All right, all right. Everyone, calm down. We'll go through each of these one by one, and let's see what we have. But maybe first, the prosecutor will give me some helpful background. Here's the good news. As simple as I am trying to make it, at least now, I have a list of things I want to better understand about this case. It may not solve whether others are involved yet, but it will answer the first set of questions about whether Lee Harvey Oswald was up there and pulled the trigger. Ugh, I'm hungry. Does anyone have a sandwich? Although, the more I think about it, I don't think I should be eating a sandwich in the middle of this discussion. It's just too important to get it all right. All right, let's declare a recess and go have that sandwich. I'll be back after lunch. We'll get together next in episode 16 when we start to address the answers and the details to each of these questions. <laughs>